Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Jones Report. Tyler Jones here with you. So glad to have you with us. Coming up on today's show, Matt Simic's going to stop by. We are live from the Final Four, the site of the 2013 Men's Basketball Championship. We'll tell you everything you need to know ahead of the Final Four. A huge sports weekend with the Men's Final Four going on here in Houston. The Women's Final Four in Dallas, WrestleMania this weekend, MLB opening day. We will talk about it all coming up here on today's show. And uh, I'm joined by uh, TJ Reeves here at the top of the show, who's uh, here with me. We'll be doing coverage for TuneIn Radio's College Basketball Coast to Coast this weekend. TJ, uh, welcome to the Final Four. The road ends here and... What an unlikely road we have for these uh, four teams that ultimately are here this weekend with a chance to win the uh, national championship. Well, it is great to be with you. And uh, yes, this is the year of the unexpected, the, the, the unexpected Final Four of unexpected Final Fours. It is the first time in 53 years, as you know, but I don't know how many people in the audience realize and understand that we've got three first-time teams at college basketball's finale at the holy grail if you will of trying to win a national title first time ever for san diego state florida atlantic and for miami that hasn't happened since 1970 the year of my birth you were not on the planet yet had your parents met yet i don't know uh but that has been a while that has been some 53 years ago uh so it's wild it's different but uh, there's been a lot of discussion as we get here to houston i I realize we don't have, as we keep saying, a Duke, a Kansas, a Kentucky, a Michigan State, a Syracuse, a North Carolina, UCLA, the brand names that we know. But I am fine with that. I I think, you know, every once in a while you can have something different. You can have new blood, if you will. You can have variety uh, of teams. And you've got a true mid-major Cinderella in Florida Atlantic. I don't know how much of a mid-major San Diego State really is. San Diego State's got a strong athletic budget. They've had a tremendous basketball program for really about the better part of 15 or 20 years. I don't know how much of a mid-major that is. Miami is a first-time team, but that's an ACC program, as you know, Tyler, with a big budget. And then you've got UConn. And by the way, we're going to get into this many different ways. But the last time that the Final Four did not have a number one seed was 2011, Tyler Jones. Stay with me here on this. 2011 is the last time no number one seed, just like right now. Where was the Final Four played? Tyler Jones in 2011, right here, Houston, Houston Texas. Who who won that Final Four in 2011 with no number one seeds in Houston, Texas? That'd be UConn, um, right? UConn, UConn. So if you believe in bookends, if you believe in omens, symmetry, uh, those kind of things, maybe this is UConn's time to finish it off with Danny Hurley, just like what they did in 2011. We're here to find out, and it's going to be some scene at NRG Stadium, the home of the Houston Texans, to take some of this in uh, for Friday leading into Saturday and then the two semifinals. Yeah, it's going to be incredible to see how ultimately it all plays out. And you mentioned uh, the different teams. You know, we look back last year, for example, you had four Blue Bloods with Kansas, Villanova, Duke, and North Carolina, and all four were – uh, led by big names of coaches, even Hubert Davis, who was the newcomer. Everybody knows Hubert Davis, but Coach K's last Final Four, Bill Self, uh, ultimately ended up being Jay Wright's Final Four. Come into this year, and it, it feels like there, there's not a whole lot of star power within this. You're not going to have any lottery picks playing in this Final Four. Uh, you know, not huge big name coaches by any means either. Uh, the Seems like an opportunity to, I guess, put it this way, of to become a star, to uh, take advantage of this opportunity here. I mean, you could make a name for yourself here this weekend by winning that national championship. Well, there's no question uh, that this is the stage where stars are made and where we find out about these biggest names. And you're right. I mean, with all the star power you had last year, plus Coach K's final game, as it turns out, you knew it was going to be his final game, either in the semifinal with North Carolina or in the title game. And I can still relate this story. I I don't know what we're in in store for when we get around NRG Stadium and the complex uh, and, again, with the different fan bases. The belief is there's going to be more UConn fans 
than any of the other fan bases will see. Will UConn have 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 fans here? They've had a great history of winning the Final Four in Texas. They also won it at AT&T Stadium in Arlington in 2014. They won it in the Alamo Dome in 2004. They've got three appearances in the 2000s in Texas in the Final Four, winning three championships. So UConn's got a deep, traditional uh, fan base couple of generations of UConn fans that expect winning, so they will probably have the most people here out of the groups. But take you back 52 weeks ago to New Orleans, because this is why you have me here on the Jones Report for some insight. Everywhere you went on that Friday and that Friday night, the Carolina fans had all the anti-Coach K stuff on that they could get their hands on. I still remember people wearing these Carolina blue light shirts with a coffin on them that said Coach K's last game. They're walking around the French Quarter with those shirts on. So you had animosity. You had blue bloods, like you're mentioning. You had the back. You had the backdrop of uh, is this Coach K's final game on Saturday, which it turned out to be. Uh, and then the end result is Kansas. Your Jayhawks, by the way, you're still smiling because at least for another day or two, the Jayhawks are still the college basketball champs until we crown somebody else Monday night. You had all of that. But back to your point about making your name on this biggest stage. I mean, Jim Laranega is back. He's the only coach with Final Four experience, taking George Mason to the Final Four in 06. For Danny Hurley, out of the shadow of his brother Bobby, who's a famous Duke player that won national titles. If he can take these final two steps, you make yourself for all time as a national champion uh, coach. Same thing. I mean, most people don't know the name Brian Dutcher, who's the, who's the San Diego State coach, or their players. You don't really, you don't, you certainly don't know Dusty May and Florida Atlantic, but man, they are on the map with the attention they've gotten the last 10 days or so with what they've done. And you're right. We don't really have a bona fide first round NBA pick. I, I saw a couple of analysts saying there are probably a couple of players, maybe, that could go in the first round. Sonogo is one of those, possibly from uh, UConn as the big man. Maybe a John L. Davis of, of Florida Atlantic could be a first, maybe a second round pick. Other than that, is it Isaiah Wong of, of Miami? I, I don't know who else is an NBA draft pick. So you're right. You're going to make a name for yourself on the college basketball hardwood, if not the NBA, the next level hardwood this weekend. And why do I get the feeling that most of these programs right now, they don't care about the NBA. They only care about, can we get to that title game and maybe win it? Because that's all-time stuff for whoever can do it, especially Miami, FAU, San Diego State that have never been here, Tyler. Yeah, it's a great point. And so with that, I was thinking about this, TJ. How would we, if we were to reseed the Final Four, what would it look like this weekend? I know that there's been discussions. The committee has taken a lot of flack the last couple of days for how uh, you know they put together their bracket and the way this ultimately played out. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks saying, hey, you, they, they got the ones wrong or some of this. To, to me, I mean, the, the committee has a job to look at the resumes. So I look at FAU, for example. Here's a team that has been good all year long. You can't deny it with all the games that they've won in uh, this 2022-2023 campaign. But they didn't play hardly anybody. They played in Conference USA. And so as a result, they end up with that nine seed. I would say, DJ, the committee didn't get it wrong because their job, it's not like the college football playoff committee where you're trying to look for the four best teams and what you've done with the eye test and the resume. Everything in college basketball is solely resume-based. So they got I, – I don't have a problem with what the committee did for, you know, where we're at now in the Final Four. But in FAU's case, when they got the chance to prove themselves, they capitalized, and that's why they're here. Well, and you make a good point on is it just based on your regular season or now you're talking about is it based on your tournament performance the first weekend because clearly after beating, oh, I got to say it, my Memphis Tigers, FAU didn't look like just a nine seed on face value and they've more than validated that. They beat Tennessee the four seed and then they beat Kansas State the three seed. Definitely worthy. Look at a team like Miami that's been playing in the ACC, which got knocked some uh, for this year, they have to play a four in Indiana in the four five game. Then they have to play the one Houston. Oh, and then your reward is play the two in Texas. That's the toughest road of any of the four teams that got here. Uh, yes, San Diego State took down a one seed in Alabama. 
But the highest seeded team that UConn played was Kansas that was a three. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Gonzaga that was a three. Kansas had already lost, as you know, sorry. Uh, UCLA had already lost. So Miami had the toughest road. So if you were reseeding the teams, you could make the argument that maybe Miami should be seeded higher than UConn based on what they have done to this point in the tournament. Or certainly, uh, if you were reseeding the teams, let's say after the Sweet 16 uh, for the Elite Eight, that uh, you know you were starting over one through eight, that Miami should have gotten more consideration maybe uh, because of what they had done to that point, beating a four, beating a one. You know what? The the ultimate thing is they're going to decide this on the court. It's the same thing every year. This thing never fails to deliver on drama and excitement. And I'm not so sure that this is just a rubber stamp of UConn wiping out Miami and then wiping out either the Aztecs or the Owls on Monday night. Miami may have something for them in the semifinal game. Then, Tyler, this thing is wide, wide open if Miami is there against either San Diego State or Florida Atlantic. I mean, we're still sitting here in the preview mode contemplating we could have an all, as I keep saying, beach Armageddon final four with San Diego State or Florida Atlantic and Miami playing against each other for the basketball. And if it's the two Florida teams and it's the two South Florida teams, not the Gators, not not the Seminoles in the state where I live, how bonkers is that if it's Miami and Florida Atlantic for the title? That is, that is hard to wrap your brain around, even while we're in Houston, my friend. Yes, uh, wouldn't that be something if that's the case, if it uh, results that way with uh, those teams on that front there. Uh, with that being said, we, we talked about the kind of lack of star power, the opportunity to become a star this weekend and make a name for yourself here. It's so interesting. You know, you got the, the women's Final Four back where I'm at in Dallas going on, and there's some big names in that with Kim Mulkey and Don Staley and, and uh, you know, Caitlin Clark and everything. And then here – Everybody's trying to figure out who's who in pink and blue type of deal. Um, I look at one thing I'm watching for, you know, with, with Jim Laranega, this is a guy that with what he did at George Mason and now here at Miami in the final four, isn't Laranega somebody that after this weekend, no matter even what happens, just the fact that he's got Miami here. And remember they went to the elite eight last year too. Is it time that Laranega gets some respect? It's talked about among the greats in college basketball. I I think that we could be making the case for Laranega as one of the, uh, you know, maybe even having a shot at the Hall of Fame when it's all said and done based on what he's done to get this team to this point and what he did in George Mason and everything. To me, I, I don't know how jo Jim Laranega gets totally forgotten about here. Well, and it's a strong thing to say Hall of Fame when you haven't won a championship. Now stay tuned. That could all change in about uh, 72 hours or so here once they, they tee it up Saturday and then again on Monday night. But you you make the argument that to take George Mason to a Final Four and he has won at a very high level uh, wherever he's been and been in the NCAA tournament and been a tremendous coach. So uh, I don't know if it right. Do you put him in the same category with Coach K's and John Wooden's and uh, the, the all-time uh, the Adolph Rupps back in the day and now in the present day, somebody like a Jay Wright that won a couple of national titles. Uh, Bill Self uh, now has a couple of national titles. Does I mean, Eddie Sutton's in the Hall it, of Fame. I'd, I'd put him in that Eddie Sutton class. Yeah, and, and the other – correct. And there there are other coaches that maybe didn't win a championship that deserved to be there. But if you take two programs for the first time, like a George Mason and like a Miami, maybe that's as strong as winning a championship too. So – I, and he is phenomenal to deal with. I mean, you're going to be around this, uh, in and around this game. Post-game depends on how long they hang around. But he is amazing on dealing with the media. Deal, look how much his players love him. And this this goes for a lot of these coaches, where you will see how much their players, how beloved they are. We see the behind-the-scenes, all-access video of them in the locker room dancing, or they're spraying it all with water, whatever. But Laranega doing the dance, and his player, his player, I mean, 73 years old. His players are still identifying with that. Very lovable, very likable, but a heck of a coach. And I, I think the, the argument can be made, it is coaching advantage Miami. He's the only guy that's been here before. Uh, out of Danny Hurley, Brian Dutcher, and Dusty May, they, they, they are new to this. They are new to the awe of this and how big of a deal and how much media glare there's been for the last four or five days. Laranega is the one at an advantage. Let's see how much of an advantage. But yes, you make a good point. He deserves to be on this bigger stage and maybe deserves some Hall of Fame consideration.
Maybe so. TJ Reeves joining us here on the Jones Sport this week. We're live from the Final Four in Houston. And uh, let's talk about this. We'll bring in Matt Zemick here in just a moment. But TJ, I was thinking about with this Final Four, glaring over this is the whole conference realignment situation. We know what's going on with the Pac-12 and their TV negotiations, but San Diego State is sure making a strong case to be in said Pac-12 and uh, to not only just be a member, but get a full revenue share when when you put together Final Four type performances uh, that certainly deserves some attention there. But you look at UConn, they're being linked to some Big 12 rumors as a basketball only member. We know about Miami and Clemson and Florida State. Those teams are looking at their options, potentially the SEC or the Big Ten. And then FAU, this is actually their last year in Conference USA. They're about to head to the American here. There's some big implications, I think, when it comes to the future of college sports and where these teams are going to go. It certainly helps their case, all of them, for their future just being here this weekend. Uh, Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And the interesting thing when you were saying that is Miami relocated from the Big East uh, into the ACC now over 15 years ago. Uh, UConn has kind of been a nomad. UConn was in the Big East. They went in the American Conference and actually won a national title in 2014 in North Texas, as we talked about, beating Kentucky as an American Conference team. But now they have found their way back into the Big East. They realize the Big East basketball is a bigger deal. You mentioned Florida Atlantic moving up. And then Matt will obviously talk more about San Diego State's chances to be in the Pac-12, which should be really good right about now because the Pac-12 is in need of teams. It's in the footprint of the of the Pacific Coast in the conference. It's a larger market as the college markets go. You would think this is an audition for San Diego State. So, yes, realignment still very much at the fore here at the forefront of all of this. Uh, and it, it is interesting, uh, you know, the musical chairs, it's not it's not going to stop. And I mean, Brian Dutcher was open about that earlier this week. He said, we we understand that all this realignment is going to happen sooner rather than later for numerous other schools again to move around, whether they're ending up in the Big Ten, whether there's some uh, hybrid now of the Big 12 along with. Uh, the Pac-12, does the Big 12 come raid some Pac-12 schools? Does the Big 10 go raid some more Pac-12 schools? It's it's not going to be dull. It's going to be crazy. I mean, obviously, Oklahoma and Texas, you're kind of in the Big 12 region and based out of Dallas, them moving to the SEC. And it's still hard to get to comprehend this, but USC and UCLA moving into the Big 10, this is, and we're not done. We're not done with the realignment. That's your point, and you are correct. Yeah, it's uh, going to be fascinating to see how it all plays out. Matt Semick going to join us here in just a moment with more on uh, the conference situation and uh, also looking ahead to the Final Four. TJ, before we uh, let you go here, just some uh, final thoughts here. What's uh, going to shake out this weekend? How do you see this uh, all playing out? Who ultimately hoisted the uh, that ugly NCAA trophy when it's all said and done? With the full understanding that I got zero teams into the Final Four, as most people, there are millions who got zero teams into the Same Final here. Four. Here goes. Here goes. Uh, Low-scoring first semifinal game. What a surprise for San Diego State and Florida Atlantic. The stat is that San Diego State has held 20, 27 times, not necessarily 27 opponents because it could be a repeat opponent. 27 times they've held the opponent under 70 points. They're 25-2, and two, by the way, when that happens. They did it to Alabama. They did it to Creighton. So this is going to be a low-scoring game with Florida Atlantic. When it's all said and done, I think the Aztecs get it done. They win the grinded-out low-scoring game. The veteran players, it's been a great story for Florida Atlantic. I think they will be there. And ultimately, how do you go against the way UConn's offense has looked with their three-point shooting? Um, Sonogo down low. They've got two two big guys down low. But Lara Nagan company keep it close. I think it's close, but UConn probably wins. I think we're looking at, at, at the two favorites, UConn and San Diego State on Monday night. If there is an upset, it's Miami with the better chance, I think, than Florida Atlantic to pull the upset with the qualifier, Tyler Jones. I don't think any of us know anything right now. It could very well be Florida Atlantic and Miami. It could very well be San Diego State and Miami. It has been that wild of a tournament, and I'm intrigued to see what's going to happen on this Saturday. Who handles the pressure, the limelight? Again, you would think Miami has the advantage because Larry Nick has been through it before. They help his team. 
How do they handle it shooting the ball? Do they play nervous? Do they play tight? We're about to find all of that out in Houston on Saturday. Cannot wait. Cannot wait to do it and cannot wait to be around you, my friend, while we do it. Yes. And uh, TJ, where can people see the uh, stuff we're going to be doing this weekend with college basketball, coast to coast, uh, tune in radio, where can people follow all that action uh, as we'll be all over in here. You gave a great plug. We're going to be on TuneIn's live channel, College Basketball Coast to Coast. You do have to have TuneIn Premium to be able to hear that uh, and find that. But under the College Basketball coverage, you'll see the TuneIn channel, College Basketball Coast to Coast, and in podcast form. You don't have to subscribe uh, and pay. You can follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, College Basketball Coast to Coast. Uh, we will be uh, previewing on Saturday, Saturday night recap when the final four games are over, probably about a half hour. 40 minutes after the conclusion of the second game, we'll have a full recap of Final Four Saturday. Sunday programming, Monday preview, Monday night recap, all from Houston, college basketball, coast to coast. That's where you can find all the coverage, podcast form, or the live tune-in channel with the Tyler Jones hanging out with me. Uh, for the record, Tyler does have his cowboy boots. I do not own cowboy boots. I may have to purchase some this weekend here in the Lone Star State, but we're anxious to bring all this to you. Thank you for letting me hang on the Jones Report. And we're looking forward to everything in Houston with whatever happens, UConn, FAU, uh, Miami, and San Diego State. It will not be dull. It's going to be crazy. Let's see what happens, my friend. Good to be with you. You're, you're from Tennessee and don't own cowboy boots? Come on, TJ. No two, no cowboy boots for me. No big belt buckle. No 10-gallon hat. Oh, you're missing no out. No spurs. No chaps. we got to find your, your inner <laughs> urban cowboy. i got to channel my inner John Dutton, you're saying, from Yellowstone. Yes. yes. This is Reeves and I finally caught up binge watching on four seasons worth of Yellowstone. We're finally caught up. So I can now speak the language with you, Tyler Jones. And I'm glad to be with you in Houston for everything with the final four, my friend. Yeah. Should yeah. be a lot of fun this weekend. Uh, follow TJ at Buck Sideline Guy. Me at Tyler Jones Live. We'll be all over here from the final four in Houston this weekend. Matt Zimmick joins us next. Stay with us here at the Jones Sport. Joining us now Jones Sport this week is our friend Matt Zimmick is – uh, with us as we're talking all things Final Four, also uh, with the Pac-12 and their TV negotiations and everything as he covers that conference and he joins us right now. Matt, always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Uh, what's going on in your uh, neck of the woods here? Hey, I mean, you know, there's a lot going on. Like, I'm the editor of Trojans Wire, and I know that it's a, we're a football school, but, like, USC's doing big things in basketball, and we might have a, some really good USC hoops teams next season because you have Isaiah Collier starting in the McDonald's All-American game and he's trying to recruit Bronny James. I mean, USC could have like a top two, top three seed level team for next season. So like it's, it's going good right now. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I saw Andy Enfield uh, sometime in the last couple of weeks and it popped up on screen that he'd been there 10 years now. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's 10 That's years. Crazy. <laughs> crazy 10 years since dunk city man and he's a good coach too it's just a matter of they can put it all together but watch out i mean no no question and that's the thing that you know andy enfield he he's had his, his limitations as a coach but he has his limitations as a coach because he's never had a true cadillac roster and he might right. be in the process of assembling that at usc for next season how about that that's uh that's fascinating we'll see how that goes uh Matt, the Final Four uh, coming up this weekend, and I got to tell you, you know, I'm excited to be there. It should be a lot of fun. You know, I'll be there with, you know, TJ will be there and, and company, and and this one is so different than any other Final Four. We went last year had, you know, what, four Blue Bloods, traditional powers, even if North Carolina was a, a low seed, as an eight, um, you still had the name brands. This year, you don't have – really much of that at all. I mean, UConn, I guess, is a name brand, but it's been a long time since they've been back on this stage. And then, you know, Miami in there, we typically don't talk about as being much of a basketball school. This th this has a very different feel than a typical Final Four does. It sure does. So, like, this is the first Final Four since 1970 with three first-timers at the Final Four. In that 1970 Final Four in College Park, Maryland, you had John Wooden's UCLA and then three newcomers, New Mexico State, Jacksonville, and St. Bonaventure. And so this Final Four really recalls 
1970 Final Four. And the other thing about this is that this is the first Final Four since the NCAA tournament was first seeded in 1979 that you have no top three seeds anywhere uh, at, at this event. And it's been notable that, you know, something like the business of sports uh, outlets, various sports business uh, websites, bloggers have mentioned over the past 48 hours or so, the get in price for this final four for semifinal Saturday, it's under a hundred bucks. And meanwhile, with the women's final four and Caitlin Clark going up against Don Staley's unbeaten South Carolina team, which is a real blockbuster, uh, the get-in price at the women's Final Four is over 300 Now, of course, the women play in a conventional arena, so you, know, you have like 20,000 seats as opposed to 70,000 for the men. So right. like the demand like that does affect the price point. But still, when was the last time you could ever say that the, a women's Final Four ticket was, about, was over three times the amount of the value of a men's Final Four ticket? So like if you're in Houston or if you're in New Orleans, uh, Arkansas, Dallas, like if you're within driving distance of Houston, like this is the time for you to get to the final four on the cheap. Like you're never going to have a final four semifinal Saturday ticket as affordable or as accessible as this one. So like this is your chance if you live in that part of the country and it's within driving distance, like, hey, take advantage of it. You're, you're, you're never going to be able to get to the final four this cheaply, uh, it, you know, like in the near future. This is, this is a very unique event. Oh, it is. It is. And uh, with that being said, looking at this weekend, um, you know, I, I know you mentioned, you know, it's a cheap ticket to get in and it's a very different feel. But at the end of the day, this is still the final four. You know, one of these teams is going to be – Winning the national championship here. Who is the the biggest surprise or the biggest shocker? I mean, I know people are going to point to FAU, but looking at the way March has gone for Conference USA, maybe we shouldn't be so shocked. Maybe Conference USA should have got more respect. Uh, you know, when you look at what they're doing in the NIT as well. Here, I mean, what 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 to me? What what's the biggest surprise or, or biggest storyline uh, that catches your eye heading into this weekend here? Yeah, see, like, I don't think you can call any one team, like, a huge surprise because, you know, and you you follow college basketball the whole season, Tyler, and you know that there was no heavyweight number one seed. Right. There was no team that clearly separated itself. Like, Alabama probably had the most raw talent, but you saw Alabama get smoked by 24 points by an Oklahoma team that didn't even make the NIT. Right. And, and like we saw Alabama's warts, we saw Alabama's flaws. We know that a Nate Oates team puts all its eggs in just a few baskets. And one of those baskets was three point shooting. So Alabama goes three of 27 <laughs> from three point range against San Diego State. And like the proof of how uh, absent, there, you know, a, a heavyweight team was in college basketball this season, the proof of how there was no truly great transcendent team. It was it, the proof was affirmed over this past weekend in the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight, specifically Tyler by the fact that you know these higher seeds they had leads midway through the second half, and they couldn't hold them. Alabama led San Diego State by nine with about 11 and a half minutes left. Texas led Miami by 12 with just over 10 minutes left. Kansas State led, led FAU by six with about 10 minutes left. You know so normally. In the history of the NCAA tournament, when you look at a higher seed against a lower seed, and more specifically, a higher seed from a Power Five conference against a lower seed from Conference USA, the Mountain West, uh, normally, like when the higher seed figures it out and gets that advantage of two, three, four possessions, like six to ten points, midway through the second half, it's game over. The higher seed stays in control, puts the foot down, and goes to the finish line. So with these higher seeds losing these, you know, modest leads of 6, 10, 12 points, like that's the proof. That's the proof that there was no really elite shutdown team where, you know, if it gets up, it's over. Um, like, I mean, UConn, UConn's played that way in the NCAA tournament, but UConn did not play that way over the whole season. Now, UConn didn't lose a non-conference game, but then UConn got roughed up a lot. By the Big East, UConn was playing in a four versus five 
Big East Tournament quarterfinal didn't come particularly close to winning the Big East championship. So, like, there, there's just been no team where you can say, oh, well, this team's clearly several notches higher than everyone else. I mean, Alabama had that potential. Houston had that potential. But they didn't show it consistently. Like, Houston struggled with UCF, lost at home to Temple. I mean, there, you can see the flaws with all the teams. So when you look at it from that perspective, Tyler, like, there was no obvious choice to make the Final Four. Just full disclosure. My national championship pick on Selection Sunday was Kansas State, Texas. And I mean, like they were both, they both really had a chance in the Elite Eight, but like, a bad pick. I, I'm not shocked. I'm not shocked that they lost. Like I didn't have top seeds uh, getting to the Final Four. I thought they'd be bumped off, but I thought that, uh, you know, it was going to happen in other places. Like I thought West Virginia was going to be the team that beat Alabama, not San Diego State. Uh, you know, I, I saw kind of went in different directions, but in terms of not trusting the top seeds, like that all made sense to me. And so like the idea that we were going to have a final four with few number one, number two seeds, like that makes complete sense. And from that vantage point, I'm not surprised. And like, when you look at Florida, let's look at Florida Atlantic a little bit. Like that's not a fluke that this is not a fluke team. Um, No. And I mean, Florida Atlantic, you know, number nine seed okay but like the way florida atlantic beat kansas state in the elite eight it wasn't by you know tossing in 30 footers you know or like a a bank shot you know at the end of the shot clock you know just pixie dust kind of stuff no they got like 15 offensive rebounds they were rebounding missed free throws like they were just outworking kansas state and kansas state's a good effort team you've seen the Wildcats in Big 12 country all season long. That is a hardworking Kansas State team. FAU outworked a hardworking team. It's just elbow grease. A lot of this just winning 50-50 balls. Like, that's how Arkansas beat Kansas. It wasn't coaching magic or this genius game plan. They're just just hungry players. And they got loose balls. They work hard. They love playing together. They're unselfish. Like, that's just a really good team. And people will say, Tyler... Oh, but Purdue, you know, the number one seed got knocked off. That smoothed the path. Like, does anyone really think that uh, if you put Florida Atlantic against Purdue, that uh, Purdue wins? Like, I, I, like, I'm 100% convinced that FAU beats Purdue. <laughs> if right. that game happens, if Purdue had been able to get by Fairleigh Dickinson, uh, like, FAU's looking like a much better team. So there's just not – it's just not a fluke and. You know, when we consider Florida Atlantic, they, like they've lost only three games the whole season, right? And one of them was like in the second game of the year of the season in early November against Ole Miss. Like this team's just good. Like right. you know, you look at the you people will look at the nine seed. One could say like this team should have been a fifth seed. I'm not saying that the committee got it wrong, but like this team's just been playing at a really high standard, and the the seed number b- beside these teams. Like, it really doesn't measure how good they are. And, like, that applies to San Diego State and Miami as well. These are just good teams. Like, Miami Miami wasn't shooting three-pointers right. uh, in its comeback against Texas. Miami just won a lot of battles, uh, put, put, it, put it away at the free-throw line. Like, if none of these teams are winning in, like, a kind of a magical, cheap kind of way. I mean, San Diego State just, you know, like Creighton, Creighton's averaging 76 points a game. San Diego State holds them to 56. Alabama was averaging 81 points a game. San Diego State holds them to 64 in the Sweet 16. Like, that's no joke. Like, that these, these teams are just getting it done with rebounding, toughness, defense. These are all blue-collar basketball teams. You can throw UConn in the mix as well. But UConn obviously has the size and the length uh, that the other teams in the Final Four don't have. It's why UConn's the favorite. But just... Like there's nothing fluky about any of these teams, and that's something well, that's none of these. Emphasized. None of these teams have lottery draft picks, but they have nope. good players. They have guys that have been playing together for a long time that have earned this moment and have been playing good team basketball. One of the things that 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 draws my attention here and kind of leads us into what we're going to talk about with Pac-12 too. It feels like to me, Matt, that the realignment stuff. It's kind of glaring over this Final Four is all four of these teams 
have some realignment connections of some sorts. We know FAU is about to go to the American. Uh, we look at UConn and they came back to the Big East and now there's Big 12 rumors going on. San Diego State talking with the Pac-12 and now that's gone. Miami, uh, their future uncertain with the ACC, whether it be in the SEC or the Big Ten here. Um, I mean, you could, I know that, that football is the driving force of realignment, but I mean, you take home a championship in basketball this weekend or make a statement of being the Final Four, that that certainly helps your case of, you know, giving you some flexibility if you want to find a new home here in the future. Absolutely. And like, you know, Gonzaga and the Big 12 have been in discussions and, and like that, that question is hanging over everything in terms of realignment. So like, this is a real thing. And, and certainly the coaches and the administrators at these schools, like they know that these conversations are going on and boy, like San Diego state in my mind, like, there were strong rumors. There was strong speculation about San Diego State going to the Pac-12, you know, before this NCAA tournament started. So, like, if you want to talk about timing, if you want to talk about hitting the jackpot, uh, you know, right when, you know, like the Pac-12 hasn't finalized its media rights deal with George Klyavkov. So, say, here comes San Diego State making the Final Four. And you might know, but, but your listeners uh, on the Jones Report, like, they might not be aware of this but san diego state recently got an on-campus stadium built it opened this past season san diego state played the previous i believe two seasons at least uh 2021 uh in los angeles it's kind of a nomad and a team in exile you know jack murphy stadium also known as qualcomm for the younger set that stadium got imploded uh you know a few years ago so san diego state was basically homeless in 2021, they finally got their on-campus stadium built. So, like, that's a program that invested a lot of resources in football, in athletics. And so what we know that, you know, we know what March Madness success has done for Gonzaga, and that's a basketball-only school. But now San Diego State making the Final Four, like, the, the increase in admissions and everything on the academic side, like, that could flow into the football program. It could certainly flow into their NIL. Like, that is – obviously part of the new normal that we're all dealing with. So San Diego State has a real case to make that, hey, we're in the Final Four. We're now positioned to be a bigger player, not just in basketball, but also in football. And so you would think, you know, relative to the Pac-12 in this part of our conversation, Tyler, that, you know, San Diego State has just driven up the price point for George Klyavkov. That Klyavkov can now go to ESPN and Amazon and Apple in terms of negotiating packages for football and basketball, and he can now command a higher dollar figure. Because like now San Diego State seems like a big deal. And now San Diego State might not be, you know, as easily written off as this, you know, third rate property. Maybe now it's not a top tier property, but like maybe it's now second rate instead of third rate. And that could certainly, you know, drive the Pac-12's dollar figures higher, not to the point where they exceed the Big 12. I'm I don't really think that's gonna happen, but like the main thing for the Pac-12 is get close to the Big 12 number. Doesn't have to exceed it, but just get close to it. Because if it's like let's say three or four million dollars short per school, so if it's like it comes in at 27 uh, uh, million instead of 31, like that's not going to cause the four corner schools. That's not going to cause Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, and Utah to look for the the Big 12 and to or to bolt for another conference. If it's just a, a, a handful of millions of dollars per year, like that's not going to be enough of an incentive to just, you know, blow up everything and uproot all these relationships that Pac-12 member schools have established. It has to be significantly short. It has to be 15, 20 million short. And like if there if there's a Grand Canyon size gap, then you're going to get Pac-12 mutiny and then the, the existence of the Pac-12 is threatened. But they're, they're, these schools are not going to walk over three, four, five million dollars. That's that that is a misconception that needs to be cleared up. Well, uh, with that being said, too, um, I wonder how much is the concern with as much emphasis as it looks like the Pac-12 is going to go to streaming? Because, take example, UConn here. UConn, big reason why they left the American. They were frustrated with how many games. We're going to be on ESPN Plus when they left the American to go to the Big East. And you look at these conference schools. I know a lot of time has passed since since then, and the West Coast 
is usually more proactive when it comes to streaming and technology as opposed to the rest of the country anyway. But if you're going to take less money and not have games on linear, how big of an issue is that, you think, for those Pac-12 members? See, it's not as big an issue for the Pac-12 as it would be for other conferences. And the reason, Tyler, is not it's actually not that complicated. It's because the Pac-12 network, you know, could not get on direct TV. So, like, the Pac-12 has already been operating at a deficit in terms of getting on linear, in terms of getting on TV sets. And so, compared to this Pac-12 network, you know, dumpster fire under Larry Scott, anything's going to be an improvement. Like, getting on to Amazon, getting on to Apple, that will be better. That will make the Pac-12 comparatively more visible than under direct TV, uh, I mean, you know, under Pac-12 network and not being able to get on direct TV. So, like, it doesn't mean it's a great uh, situation for the Pac-12, but it does mean it's going to be better than what it was. And just that, that's going to be better for the member schools, that their their teams, their programs, they will be more visible uh, than they were before. And so that's something no other conference has had to deal with. You know, all the other conferences have their networks on direct TV, ACC network, SEC network, Big Ten network, uh, the Big 12. Like they haven't had a problem being available on direct TV, especially for football. But the Pac-12 hasn't been. Uh, so, you know, and, and like sports are going to move away from Pac-12 network, by the way, like just in case anyone's wondering. And Pac-12 network is going to be in the future. It's going to be the repository or like the just the, the hub for the Olympic sports, softball, swimming, you know, track, volleyball, et cetera. But Sounds like Pac-12 football and probably. basketball migrate to Amazon, Apple, and one would think ESPN as well. Right. Sounds like Pac-12 network might even be doing the production for the Pac-12 for Amazon or Apple or maybe even yes. ESPN potentially. That's right. They'll, they'll still be doing production, but it'll be shown on the streaming outlets. One would certainly think that that kind of arrangement will be arrived at. So comparatively, like it's not great, all right? Like no one's, I'm not saying or suggesting it's great. Like this is an ideal setup. And I'm not say, saying that like the Pac-12 has unique leverage here. It doesn't. But I am saying that, you know, while, while whereas some people might frown at having relationships with Amazon and Apple, for the Pac-12, it's going to be an improvement over not being on direct TV. It will be an, a net improvement. So, like, it's a low bar, you know, it's a low standard, but it will definitely be better than what's gone before. And here's the other thing, Tyler, like, in six or seven years when there's another round of media rights negotiations, it will benefit the Pac-12 to have established relationships with Amazon and Apple because you, you think five, ten years from now, we're only going to go more in that direction, not less. And streaming platforms are going to be more accessible, not less. They're going to be more commonplace, not less. So I think the Pac-12, instead of trying to do one deal with ESPN and just like put all of its eggs in that basket, I think it serves the Pac-12 well to have a, a game of the week or a package with Amazon, another game of the week package with Apple, because getting a foot in the door with those outlets for the next round of media rights negotiations in like 2029, 2030, it's going to be good for the PAC 12 to have that foot in the door. And of course, you, know, you briefly mentioned Miami as like a potential sec target. Like you're aware that's like the Florida state board of trustees, right? They're already exploring, you know, well, in several years, the grant of rights exit penalty fees are going to be so much less like it is six years from now. A lot of people, and I count myself among them, think that Florida State and Clemson for sure, maybe also Miami, but Florida State and Clemson for sure will be in the SEC. You know, they'll pay whatever penalty uh, they have to to the ACC, and they'll want to be in part of SEC football. Um, so, like, we're schools, you can tell, schools are already thinking six, seven, eight years down the line. And so the Pac-12 needs to have that in mind when it considers this round of media rights negotiations. What, what I feel like, Matt, and tell me if you disagree with this, I feel like the end game eventually, whether it's, you know, a year from now or five or 10 years from now, at some point in time, Oregon and Washington, I believe, will be Big Ten members. 
Um, and so with that, what can the Pac-12 do to keep everyone else and keep them happy and still keep the league going? Like if, if you're someone like me that believes that Oregon and Washington are eventually going to end up in the Big Ten, what's keeping everyone else there? Yeah, so, you know, I think there's something to be said in terms of the academic side, but also in terms of, you know, in terms of state legislatures out here in the West. Like, I know that the Washington state legislature has made it a point that, hey, if Washington goes to another conference, then Washington state has to go. And that, and that is going to be a, a big political barrier toward Washington and Oregon specifically going to the Big Ten while Washington State and Oregon State are left behind. It's going to be a tough, just a just in terms of the political machinations. I'm not talking about the desire of certain presidents, chancellors, athletic directors to want to go. Like, I think Oregon in its heart of hearts, Phil Knight probably wants to be in the Big Ten. So I wouldn't I wouldn't argue with that. I wouldn't contend uh, with that point. But at, on a political level, on a legislative level, it's going to be very hard to get those uh, chess pieces moved without other things uh, happening. And so that that's going to be very difficult. Um, and so in terms of what the Pac-12 can do, well, first off, like you've got like the Pac-12 needs to be proactive in terms of getting San Diego State on board really as soon as possible. But that needs to happen right away. And the Pac-12 can do other creative things such as, and uh, there's a college sports consultant that you should uh, learn more about. His name's Tony Altamore. Uh, I have done shows with him at, a, at an outlet called The Voice of College Football, which has a YouTube outlet. If you you if you if search Tony Altamore on YouTube, you'll, you'll learn a lot from him. One thing that he said several months ago on a show exploring just all these moving parts in realignment, he said that like the Pac-12 could have Oregon play Stanford in Los Angeles at a neutral site, uh, probably in the years when Stanford is slated to host. You know, Stanford often doesn't draw really well at its home stadium uh, for regular season games. So, like, you don't want to take the home game away from Oregon. You don't want to take the revenue away from the Ducks in Austin Stadium. But, like, every other or every two, four years, when a game is slated to be in Stanford, you don't play it in the Bay Area. You play it in, like, SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. And the reason being is just you give these alumni bases, which are spread out. Like, it's it's not it's not as though Stanford doesn't have a lot of alumni in Los Angeles or that Oregon, Arizona don't have a lot of alumni in Los Angeles. They do. So you, so with USC and UCLA no longer uh, in, the, in the Pac-12, play some games in Los Angeles. Play some games in Southern California. As neutral site games, yes, it's totally odd. It's totally unconventional. Uh, it might seem completely out of left field, but you get those alumni bases networking at right. the games in those SoFi Stadium luxury suites. So there are creative ways for the Pac-12 to do things to kind of keep each of their alumni bases and their alumni communities together and also fundraising and like feeling like they're all part of a team. You might see something like that several years down the line. Well, and we've seen conferences do a good job of establishing uh, territory with cities that they technically don't have schools in. The Pac-12 with Las Vegas, the Big 12 with Kansas City, Missouri, even with Mizzou out, they still own that town. I mean, the ACC has established footprint in New York City now. So, yeah, that would be interesting to see them take that uh, that next step with, with that approach uh, to go things uh, that way. Uh, with, with USC and UCLA leaving, uh, and I know you cover the Trojans closely here, this is about to be their final year in the Pac-12 before they move on here. How are things uh, there in, in Los Angeles with both those schools as they're gearing up to make this transition? I know here uh, everybody with Oklahoma and Texas involved can't wait. They, they, they wish they could join tomorrow. What's the feeling in Los Angeles about those two schools and their impending arrival? So, you know, USC fans, like, they are so ready to go to the Big Ten. They, like, they're sick of, you know, being part of the Pac-12 and, you know, being on Pac-12 network. Like, the USC-Oregon State game, which was a really big game last season, that was a Pac-12 network game, and a lot of people didn't get to see it. Uh, people are ready to get just get rid of the – get you know, get away from the conference that had Larry Scott all those years and, and you know, George Klyavkov now. 
Uh, like they just think it's an amateur hour conference and we go to the Big Ten and we're going to be on the prime game all the time, either big noon Saturday when it's a road trip to Penn State or Michigan State or, or Ohio State. And then the other thing is like now you're, you'll probably get USC playing a home game at night uh, against the lower end Big Ten teams, such as like Rutgers when Rutgers comes to L.A., when Maryland comes to L.A., Western for, for but for Michigan, Ohio State, uh, you know Penn State, Wisconsin, you know you're you're never going to see USC play those teams late. They will be in that uh, seven thirty Eastern, four thirty Pacific window that NBC has the rights to. So like this is positioning USC better in terms of television. It's obviously providing the revenue. So like USC fans are really excited about that. And of course now we turn to you know USC has to deliver the goods on the field. And it's worth noting, you know, just in, in terms of including this in our conversation, that if you compare the USC 2022 football schedule to the 2023 football schedule, just look it over. You'll see that like in 2022, George Klyavkov and the Pac-12 made sure USC had every advantage in the schedule because USC hadn't yet left for the Big Ten. You know, these schedules, of course, are made in December or January. So USC hadn't, you know, decided to leave. That 2022 schedule, cushy had all like all of the little nuanced advantages that you would hope for from your cash cow program in the conference. But then, oh, 2023, after USC's decided to leave, this schedule's rough. This schedule's nasty. USC has to play Notre Dame, and then it gets Utah the week after Notre Dame. Like, if you're trying to take care of a cash cow program, make sure it has the best chance to win the national championship, you don't schedule Utah the week after Notre Dame. You right. schedule Cal or you have an off week. So the Pac-12 is putting USC through the meat grinder. Notre Dame, Utah, Washington, Oregon, four really tough games in a five-week sequence. Uh, and USC plays nine straight weeks, weeks four through 12. So, like, that is a situation set up to challenge USC and make it as hard as possible for the Trojans. So, like, the, the Pac-12 flipped the bird to USC on its way out the door. It's hilarious, but we ought we ought to be able to see it for what it is. It feels like UCLA is kind of just along for the ride that this move was about USC. But even with that said, for UCLA, Chip Kelly's doing a really good job. They've been good the last couple of years. They're kind of sending upward. Mick Cronin's doing a good job with that basketball program. I mean, and we saw USC football, I think, take a big step up. I feel like the Big Ten is – not getting the USC and UCLA that we've seen in the Pac-12 as of late. The Big Ten's about to get not one but two ascending programs here. I mean, I think that's more true for basketball than football. But uh, but like UCLA has certainly has had better fortunes in football the past few years than it has uh, in several years. Like not since Jim Mora in 2014, uh, that period of time, has U UCLA been as good in football. But here's the here's the cautionary note with UCLA, you know, because of the COVID eligibility and, and all that, Chip Kelly was able to have Dorian Thompson Robinson as his quarterback for five consecutive seasons. Now that's pretty rare, and UCLA being as good as it was last year, very closely connected to Chip Kelly having a fifth year quarterback. Uh, you know, so like that 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 really helped UCLA along. And so now DTR is no longer there, and it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how Chip Kelly and, and the program uh, are able to adjust. This is a really important year for UCLA, not just because it's going to the Big Ten next year and you want to have some confidence, but like, how does Chip Kelly work with his new quarterback, uh, and can he make this offense uh, sing as much as it did the past few years with DTR there? Yeah, it's a great point. Matt, uh, we've run out of time, but uh, always a pleasure talking to you, man. Where can people follow you and see all your work? So we're at Trojans Wire and on the web. That's trojanswire.usatoday.com on Twitter, Trojans Wire. And like, so we have recruiting stories in football and basketball. Football, a Deuce Robinson, elite tight end. He's going to decide on Thursday evening, March 30th. And then, you know, we're all wondering if Bronny James is going to join the nation's number one recruit, Isaiah Collier, for USC basketball. Like This could get really explosive really quickly at USC. Oh, yeah, certainly could. Uh, Matt, thanks for joining us. We'll uh, talk in down the line. 
Always a pleasure to be with you, Tyler. Thanks for having me back. Final segment before we go. It's time for our Tom Fulmery story of the week where we tell you something ridiculous happening in the world. And this week, we got a dandy for you. We're going to go to the state of Maryland. That's where uh, we find this story, courtesy of rawstory.com. Two teenagers in Maryland have been arrested after they tried to carjack a person on Saturday, but soon realized they couldn't drive the car because it was a stick shift. The 16-year-old and 17-year-old have since been charged with one count of carjacking and one count of conspiracy carjacking each. They've been charged as adults. The teens reportedly forced open the car door and grabbed the man while demanding he hand over his keys. The man obeyed and got out of his car, but when the two teens got into the car, they realized they couldn't drive the car because it was a stick shift. So the pair jumped out of the car and ran off. When police saw the teens a short time later, they tried to run, but they were apprehended. <laughs> oh, this is good. This is just beautiful, isn't it? Uh, don't know how to drive stick. I'll be honest. Um... Stick is not something I, I specialize in when it comes to uh, driving, personally. Uh, I've only driven stick a handful of times, but uh, the difference being I'm not trying to carjack, trying to take somebody's vehicle. Uh, so uh, these kids got everything that, that uh, went their way. And, and you know, what, what's, what's funny about this, too, is, like, you know, you're 16, 17 years old. You know better, obviously, than to be trying to carjack and take somebody's vehicle so to me i find that hysterical that uh that was the case that these got these kids ultimately got caught trying to carjack uh, a vehicle and, and uh and do this uh they didn't know how to drive stick here's what i wonder and, and maybe i'm showing my ignorance here uh because ignorance is bliss right i mean it's it's 2023 why do we still have vehicles that have stick shift why, why can't everything just be automatic? What's the point of, of, of a stick shift vehicle? Is it to avoid from these goofy 16 and 17 year old kids from being able to take off with your vehicle? Why are we still making vehicles that are stick shift vehicles and not just all automatic at this point in time? To me, that I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense at all why every vehicle just isn't an automatic to begin with. But with that said, nonetheless, um, should it be like a requirement of some sorts of if you're going to get your license or if, you know, to drive, to learn how to drive, that you learn how to drive stick? Um, if we're still going to make vehicles that have stick in them, then, I mean, maybe that should be something we think about potentially uh, as far as I'm concerned uh, on that front. I am I am laughing inside. I love that these kids got caught and uh, tried to get away with driving a vehicle that was stick shift. Um, you know, David Starr, he's got the racing school at Texas Motor Speedway. And obviously you got to drive stick when you're at Texas Motor Speedway and learning how to do the driving school. And sometimes, David's told me this before, they're having to, at the racing school, teach people how to drive stick. And in the process, they're driving a stock car for the very first time. So not only... Are these folks having to, you know, they're driving a vehicle, uh, a stock car on an NASCAR track, you know, 150 miles an hour, but they're also learning how to drive stick for the very first time, too? I mean, it's pretty mind-boggling uh, that that's the case uh, with these guys sometimes. Uh, you know, when they hit the racetrack, when they learn how to drive, they're also learning how to drive stick for the first time. But uh, that, that, to me, is my, my one question here. Uh you know, yes, it is hilarious that these kids got caught, uh, you know, trying to get away with the car. They didn't know how to drive stick. But why do we still have vehicles anymore that are forcing people to drive stick? And why is everything not automatic? Uh, Elon, get on this. Figure this out. Do, do, or all, all Teslas, I imagine, are automatic, right? You know, if we if we have... Here, okay, here's an idea. If we have self-driving vehicles that do all the driving for you, why on earth... Are we forcing people, uh, or I shouldn't say forcing, why are we selling vehicles that are still, you know, stick shift and not automatic? Like, uh, let it do everything for me, as far as I'm concerned. You know, um, 
when uh, when you travel to states like Oregon and New Jersey and some of these others, um, you don't even have to fill up your gas. You know, they fill up your gas for you. And, you know, they, they claim it's a, a safety thing uh, when they do it up in those states. But that's what I'm looking at. Like, I, I just want uh, for these cars and stuff, just figure it out. Just don't make me do so much work as possible, okay? If the if it can drive itself, let it drive itself. If it can be automatic where I don't have to do the shifting and all that, that works for me too. So, uh, kids, let, let's can we create a standard of some sorts? If I need to learn how to drive stick, then why don't we force everybody to learn how to drive stick uh, from the day they get their license? If not, then let's not make vehicles that require driving stick. As simple as that. I am. I'm not a uh, a complicated person. I'm a simple man. I've always said that no matter how much money I make in life, I will always shop at Walmart and eat at McDonald's. Um, I just want to live in a world where every car is an automatic, and we don't have to worry about stick shift to begin with. So there you have it. That's our uh, Tom Fullery story this week. Uh, Two kids getting caught uh, carjacking but did not know how to drive stick. And so they ultimately get caught and the police win and justice survives, lives to see another day of uh, on that front. Uh, Final Four here this weekend in uh, Houston. We're going to be all over it. Got great coverage this week. Uh, myself, TJ Reeves, we're here. Um, and I got to tell you, you know, it's going to be quite the sports weekend with uh, the women's Final Four, which I think is going to be pretty – fascinating in itself and the the nation is going to see Caitlin Clark uh a lot of the nation is going to see her for the very first time and what she brings to the table um and we mentioned with TJ you know some of the other big names the Don Staley's the Kim Mulkey's of the world uh that'll be a big deal final four weekend here in 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 Houston on the men's side and you know Think about this. I don't know how many people have connected these dots or put two and two together here. We are guaranteed that a mid-major is going to be in the national championship game one way or the other, whether it's San Diego State or Florida Atlantic. One of those two teams will have a shot to win a national title, which in itself, just a mid-major getting to a national title game is a story in itself. Uh, I believe the last time we had a mid-major in a title game was Butler, uh, back in 2011 against Duke, and all those years later, look what look what happened as a result of that for Butler. That turned into another national championship appearance the year after that uh, against Connecticut, and then a bid to the Big East Conference several years later, right here in Texas. So you know, look at what that did for that program, for that Butler program. It turned things around. 110%. They're a whole different school. What we think of Butler now is totally different than what they were all those years later. San Diego State trying to get a bid to get to the Pac-12 conference. What would a national title appearance or a national championship do for them? What about UConn, who has been flirting with the Big 12 as a basketball-only member? Does this push them over the edge where maybe the Big 12 says, what about full-time membership? Uh, you guys are that good, and your football program with Jim Mora is getting better. I mean, we're talking big implications, bigger than I think most people realize uh, as far as that goes. I mean, WrestleMania, say what you want uh, about scripted wrestling and everything, but I, I think that's going to be pretty exciting this weekend with what's about to unfold in the future of the WWE. Uh, you know, as Vince McMahon is about to depart the ownership side and who they sell to, um, you know, I, I think that if you're the WWE, you got to put your best foot forward every step of the way to maximize this sale and this next media rights deal that they're about to try to do all in the next 12 months here, try to get that all finalized. These are a big stage. I, I would say that on the WWE things this weekend, it's more interesting for me what goes on behind the scenes in the backstory than the actual event itself uh, going on this weekend. Uh, the inner workings, you know, we've seen Nick Khan do a lot of interviews this week with CNBC and with First Take and Undisputed and these uh, other big networks here. What does the future of that organization hold? And do we want to take him seriously? Think about the WWE. We've seen these interviews 
where Nick Khan and you know people around WWE are trying to make this this venture, this sports entertainment venture, more mainstream, right? Um, you know, ESPN doing coverage out there and everything that goes along with that. So um, if you're a media partner, I think if you're the WWE looking forward, not only do you want to maximize your future TV deal, but I think you would say to ESPN, hey, if we're going to come to ESPN and Disney, we want highlights of Monday Night Raw on SportsCenter. Or we want, you know, SmackDown to be, you know, covered the next day on Pardon the Interruption or something like that. You know what I mean? So that's going to be interesting. Then, of course, the Masters next week. We'll talk more about that next week. But a very, very interesting next several days ahead when it comes to the Final Four here in Houston, the women's Final Four ratings-wise. I wouldn't expect the men's Final Four ratings to be that great, despite it being on CBS. The women's Final Four, I think you're going to have record ratings. It moves to ABC this year, so that's a big deal for them. Um, and then you know, watch it out on the WrestleMania front. Uh, it's on Peacock. It's as accessible as it's ever been before. Uh, I think they're looking to make a statement of some sorts for their buyers and their sellers. So a lot of storylines will be following all this weekend. Normal show back next week, back at home base in Dallas. Uh, big thanks to TJ for stopping by, uh, as well as uh, Matt Zimmick for joining us as well. Uh, and, and I see TJ's behind me. Uh, I, I made the case earlier, TJ, uh, wh why do we even still have stick shift anymore? I learned to drive on a stick shift, but they have gone <laughs> the way of the pedestal. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, no more stick shift as far as I'm concerned. Uh, let's get rid of it while we can. Uh, we'll, we'll get out of here. Uh, see you all back next week. Follow me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Tyler Jones Live. Follow Studio Soapbox on Twitter and on Facebook. Also, Jones underscore report on Instagram is where you can find me there. Uh, subscribe to the show. New episodes out each and every week. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review or leave us one at all. And we'll see you right back here next week. Thanks for joining us. Uh, more coverage from the Final Four. Check us out. Tune in. College Basketball Coast to Coast. We'll see you next time.